Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Bhavani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dina Shakir, who's a partner at Lux Capital. Lux is a venture capital firm focused on emerging technologies in the physical and life sciences arenas. Dina has a particular interest in companies accelerating advances and equity in population health. Prior to joining Lux, Dina was a partner at GV, which is formerly known as Google Ventures. She led partnerships for early stage products in healthcare, AI, and search at Google, and directed social impact investments at google.org. A Forbes contributor, she has also been featured in TechCrunch, Fortune, Crunchbase, and The Wall Street Journal. And we go way back, we were actually classmates, uh, overlapped at Harvard. I was class of 2010, and she was class of 2008. So Dina, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Shiv. Always a pleasure to chat with you. So you have a really interesting background uh, getting to VC, because uh, I know you also worked in government. Do you mind giving our audience a bit of a sense of your career path and what led you to Lux? Sure, I'm happy to. Yeah, definitely a nonlinear path. And I can um, say with certainty that, as you mentioned in 2008, when I graduated from college, that I did not have a 10-year plan um, to make my way into venture capital. But I did have a plan um, and an ambition that was always oriented around impact. Um, and this is something that started at a very young age for me, growing up uh, as the daughter of immigrants. My parents are both physicians uh, with science backgrounds. And you know, growing up a Muslim and Iraqi and coming of age during 9-11, I, it really kind of uh, impelled in me a desire to um, have aspirations toward impact, to, to helping do my part to make sure that there are no 9-11s in our future. And so in college, I studied social studies. You're one of the few people that actually knows what that means. <laughs> um, and Near Eastern languages and civilizations and graduated thinking I was going to do a PhD in anthropology. So I went to grad school, happened to be in DC at Georgetown, where I, um, I really bringing back memories now because it was right as Obama was inaugurated and witnessing that historic shift and that uh, moment in time. And while I was in grad school, I was um, you know, working on the side. I paid for both grad school and college by myself and was lucky enough to mostly get jobs that were also beneficial from a career perspective. One of those was as a journalist and you know, it was sort of, uh, you think of it as vocational anthropology, uh, storytelling and, and sort of part of that impact journey. And I happened to be helping uh, as an intern with the BBC to cover President Obama's historic speech in Cairo in 2009, which was really a watershed moment for much of the world, and certainly for me, in terms of my career ambition. I heard him talk about a new way of development and diplomacy, a new way of building bridges with the Muslim world and really with the developing world in general, and engaging entrepreneurship um, as a way of improving lives and livelihoods. So I abandoned my nascent career in journalism, joined the administration, um, and had the privilege of working on the efforts that came out of that speech and, and other efforts around tech and entrepreneurship for a number of years. From there, how did I make my way back to my actual, uh, my hometown of the Bay Area? I was born in Mountain View. It was uh, 2011. I was in the administration. The first inklings of the Arab Spring were beginning, and it was another watershed moment. And I was, I was already getting really interested in sort of how technology was no longer just a sector or a way of building a social network or an e-commerce platform. It was actually a way of doing everything better, more and more effectively, and uh, sort of witnessing what was becoming the fourth industrial revolution. I was seeing that because I was leaving DC and coming out constantly to the Bay Area. It wasn't the Bay Area that I had grown up in, where if you weren't a, maybe a chip engineer or working on a very particular type of software, there really wasn't much for you to do. 
Silicon Valley was becoming a mecca for innovation, a, a way to uh, do everything better. So that inspired me to make my way back home. And um, I ended up joining Google. So I spent the better part of five years working on product at Google, product partnerships specifically, because I had conviction that it wasn't just, for me, I wanted to learn how to build a product. I wanted to be uh, a part of making something that users would ultimately be engaging with, and that would democratize access to information and financial services and connectivity and all sorts of other things. Uh, it was a great experience. I got to do everything from build out Google's elections products to uh, work on fiber infrastructure and eventually landed on healthcare, which is how I ultimately made my way to venture. So I had um, an amazing experience building out Google's first HIPAA compliant product, which was actually a telemedicine product. It doesn't exist anymore. But in doing so, I noticed several things. One, there were so many different parts of Google, this is pre-alphabet, that were uh, engaging with health systems and payers and working on technologies for healthcare, but there wasn't really any sort of central strategy or commercialization effort. So I helped to bring those efforts together in a really kind of grassroots way. And a lot of that now has become Google Health, but didn't exist back then. And two, I realized how much more effective, how much more impactful, how much more efficient small teams of startups that I was meeting could be. And these are folks who in some cases were bootstrapped, didn't have any funds, just had an idea. And by the way, some of these companies have since gone public in recent days. So it's been quite the journey, but I was wowed by them, inspired and impressed. And also just realized it's not gonna be big tech solving some of these intractable problems. It's gonna be these, these entrepreneurs. Um, and so I um, invested in a few of them myself, small angel checks, and then sourced some of them to my friends in venture and realized that is actually the next place that I should be. It's a perfect amalgam of my experiences, my network, my passion for early stage and my uh, orientation around impact. So that was a bit of a long-winded journey, but uh, sort of hopefully connects the dots. Totally. It, it definitely does. And I think nonlinear paths are sometimes the most rich and powerful in terms of being able to, uh, to have a creative and impactful career. And actually, I know when we first connected, we talked about your Google Health experience and how uh, some of the things you had written out back then, a couple of years back, are now coming to fruition. Um, as you know, we recently partnered with YouTube Health, um, which is now becoming an official thing to hopefully combat disinformation or, or inaccurate information around vaccines, especially in the age of COVID. So going to Lux, I mean, Lux has a reputation as a very innovative moonshot type investment VC. What are some of the uh, trends that you're most excited about as well as specific companies that you're involved with at Lux? Yeah, for sure. Lux is obviously a very special firm. I think most people can see that even just from um, looking at our portfolio or our website, but we really pride ourselves on investing in entrepreneurs who are contrarians, who are rebels, and many times who are overlooked and who are really turning science fiction into fact. And so we're often known for, you know, the robots and the autonomous vehicles and the, it's just the crazy cool sci-fi, but also a very robust healthcare portfolio because truthfully, the innovation there is also uh, not only you know turning science fiction into fact in some cases with many of those sort of robotic applications that we have in healthcare, but really streamlining an analog industry, which is very much part of my um, thesis, and uh, ultimately improving lives, which is also part of our overall mission. So, tons of interesting stuff happening. I mean, we were, of course, I was digging into healthcare well before anyone knew. Uh, or what COVID was, um, but there have certainly been some really interesting trends come out as the pandemic has exposed vulnerabilities in the system and also opened up, you know, behavior change on the provider and the patient side in a way that I think it just bulldozed through years of progress otherwise. 
So to answer your uh, your question on trends, you know, I, right now I'm spending a lot of time looking at a few things. In general, looking at women's health and family health because I continue to believe it's you know underfunded, underinvested in, and um, it's just a massive opportunity. Not only fifty percent of the population, but also eighty percent of the dollars spent in healthcare. And so I think a lot of people just sort of associate women's health only with uh, reproductive health, you know, fertility and birth, and certainly that's part of it. And I am spending a lot of time there as well. But also looking at chronic disease management, looking at menopause and um, other associations with women's health. So that's that's one area of focus for me. The second one is mental health. You know, there's been quite a few dollars um, invested in the space recently. And it's certainly been one thing that the pandemic has really highlighted for many people, putting the entire world through a crisis that um, has created trauma. Yeah, as, as I know, like Lux has a SPAC as well for, for taking company public. And you probably saw the news that Talkspace is, is going public through a, a, a SPAC or SPAC. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah, for the, yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of these companies are just on fire right now. So for me, I'm excited about what's next after telehealth. I mean, I worked on telehealth, you know, six, seven years ago now, right? So it's great that we can, you and I can talk on a Zoom and like I can do the same with a therapist or a psychiatrist, but what's the next technology that's going to enable that how whether that's remote monitoring whether that's digital biomarkers whether that's novel forms of care delivery asynchronous group different types of providers coaches etc that's really where i'm spending a lot of time as well as populations where there hasn't really been a lot of innovation and that includes pediatrics and adolescents so that's where i'm spending a bunch of my time now um, and then beyond that you know diagnostics I will admit I wasn't super bullish on home diagnostics maybe two years ago. You know, you might be screened for something, but how do you even, you know, get that information to your doctor? How much are you really willing to pay out of pocket? All of that has changed now. In fact, one of the companies in our portfolio I'm most excited about is Everlywell, which we recently invested in, and which was really at the forefront, even when I was still bearish, you know, at the forefront of home diagnostics and really democratizing access to information about our bodies and our health, and certainly has built a very strong consumer brand, but also is really um, doing quite a bit as well, you know, with systems and with payers and all that. And again, with COVID, it's not just about not wanting to leave your house, but, you know, the sort of seamless testing you can do at home for COVID in particular is going to change, I think, the way that we all think about other types of diagnostics um, in the future. Yeah, that's great. I actually didn't see that news about your investment in Everlywell. We we had Julia Cheek on, on Raise Line some months ago, actually, in the middle of you know, the first wave, you know, one thing I've always found interesting. So I'm a, I'm a big sci-fi person. I like quotes like the Clark's laws, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable for magic, which I'm sure Lex probably identifies that magic. But another one is, you know, that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And you're kind of in an interesting role where like, you're obviously investing in the future. You're seeing the future every day. People who are building the future are contacting you about helping them do that. But then you've also had government experience uh, where one of the biggest challenges is equitable access to healthcare, to testing, to vaccines. So how do you see your role and in general, how do you see being able to bridge the divide between like the most high tech stuff that's already available right now and then making sure it's evenly distributed to the populations that need it? 
I love that question, Shiv. And I know that you and I have spent some time talking about this and it's a topic I'm very passionate about. I think it's multifold. So the first thing to think about is even pre-product at the clinical stage. And this has been a problem from the dawn of scientific research and it continues to be in that certain communities, particularly communities of color, um, as well as women in general, have traditionally been left out of clinical research. And there are many reasons for that. Um, oftentimes it has to do with the sort of, again, the friction to participate in a physical uh, location, actual proximity and access from a geo perspective, taking time away from family and work. What that has resulted in is a completely biased perspective on everything from dosing recommendations to, you know, understanding trends around, uh, you know, cancer and chronic disease. And so this is a huge problem. And it's a problem that, that uh, did come to light a bit in particular around the clinical trials for the COVID vaccine. And so it's getting a, a little, little bit more limelight right now. Um, and I think there are, again, the, some trends coming out of the pandemic that hopefully will contribute to more equitable access on the clinical trial side moving forward. And we're proud to be investors in a couple of companies that are helping with that. Um, Science 37 in our portfolio is at the forefront of virtualization of clinical trials. They've been doing it for quite some time and uh, are certainly helping many, many pharmaceutical companies to get better and broader access to uh, patients for en enrollment there. And the other one is a company called Electrolabs, which is um, specifically focused on um, you know, wearables and digital biomarkers and ensuring integration within clinical research is done in a high quality, high fidelity, ethical way. Um, and, and that's uh, also increasingly important. And then the third one is a company that I recently invested in called H1. And H1 is specifically focused on connecting key stakeholders, key thought leaders, KOLs, as we call them in the industry, from health systems and from academia with pharmaceutical companies to accelerate clinical research. And because of their AI and their algorithm, they're able to uncover a wider range, both of practitioners who may you know, come from underrepresented voices and communities, as well as hopefully a focus on enrolling more of the uh, underrepresented patients in the clinical trial. So these are just a few of the ways that we're really uh, passionate about and hopefully uh, making an impact in this particular problem. Totally. I mean, those are really great points. And I like what you said there about, you know, like, for example, I read your recent Crunchbase, the Crunchbase article that quoted you about menopause, how it's a $600 billion market affects, you know, more than half the population, but it's, I think, only gotten about $300 million in investment since 2009. And like, that's obviously changing. And we mentioned, uh, you know, given that you work in the government, we had Chelsea Clinton on recently from the Clinton Foundation, and um, she's on the board of Nurex, which is one of the most successful women's health, you know, technology companies right now. And we're seeing a lot more of those coming out. So I think it's exactly right. It's like, how do you apply the dollars that exist, have existed, ranging from investing in just, you know, uh, Indian or, or white male-led businesses, which is typically what Silicon Valley has invested in, to making that even more broad um, and, and bringing in other people who see other problems, uh, which I think you guys are obviously focusing on as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I get most frustrated by is how, is how often I hear women's health referred to as niche. Like, <laughs> what is niche about, you know, literally 50% of the population? And again, what I, what I mentioned around the dollars spent, there's nothing niche about that. Um, and so, again, if, if we're as investors thinking about the market potential here, it's tremendous. And so, you know, I think others will eventually catch on because there are some excellent businesses to be had here. How do you see uh, regulatory changes affecting kind of where you invest? And 
uh, a lot of companies were born out of regulatory changes. So like obviously the Obama administration did a lot around digitization of uh, electronic uh, health records. Uh, and so there were a ton of companies around that, that as you've said, many of them are now going public because of that. What are some of the things you're most excited about from a regulatory environment over the next few months that'll lead to kind of your investment thesis in healthcare? Yeah, you know, I, um, I try not to over index on either predictions or even like current regulatory framework, just because frankly, there's so much risk and variability there. That being said, I, again, going back to the pandemic, that's one area where we saw regulatory, you know, approvals and, and expansions really just accelerating and sort of compressing like a decade of reform into that short period of time. How much of that will hold really depends. But what's promising is that there is true adoptive change that is becoming ingrained in these health systems. And so the question, you know, is not just regulatory, but, you know, regulatory ties into the um, the incentives financially. Our payers looking at this, like ultimately healthcare is from one of the reasons I find it so interesting is it's obviously so complex and there's so many different stakeholders. So to really drive long-term change, you've got to nail down all, all the different pieces here. So I've seen quite an acceleration on the regulatory side. Um, and I, I'm, I'm confident that that's going to continue just because broadly speaking, and even politically speaking, there's a huge spotlight on science, the magic of science, the fact that we, you know, were able to accelerate research to the point where we manufactured uh, the, you know, the first uh, mRNA vaccine and we're distributing it around the world. I mean, brings me to tears thinking about how incredible that is. So hopefully that is the beginning of, of, of a trend towards enabling that type of research. Absolutely. And this is the first time we've had not only a female vice president, but we've also had a, a cabinet level position in science. Uh, Eric Lander, who ran the Broad Institute, who used to work at the Broad Institute when I was in college, um, is now in the cabinet. So it's very cool to see. Yeah. Somebody like him in the cabinet having you know, an envoy for climate. There are so many things that are so exciting here. It's the most diverse cabinet in history. So I am really optimistic. It's only been a few days since he started and look how much change uh, has already been written, uh, you know, into practice. So I'm optimistic on the science side as well as on everything else. <laughs> I do wonder if I could get the Fitbit data set or some sort of sleep tracking data set if people are just sleeping better these days, right? Like uh, after after January 20th, if people have higher quality levels of sleep. I know, seriously. Well, I certainly, uh, very anecdotally, I can say that that was all over my Twitter feed <laughs> folks talking about getting getting better sleep, so... <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. So, you know, as you know, Osmosis is an education company in healthcare. We like to fill in knowledge gaps. If there was a population and a topic you could choose, whether you may be teaching VCs about, you know, investing in underrepresented minorities or women's health or whatever it is, what would you encourage us to think about doing some education around? So, uh, and I think you and I actually chatted about this too, um, with the caveat, of course, that uh, much to my father's chagrin, I myself never went to medical school. Um, <laughs> I will say what I think we need more of on in clinical education is, is, is intersectionality, because medicine in practice is more than just clinical algorithms in your head determining diagnoses and treatments. And you and the students you work with and the practitioners you work with know this even more than I do. You know, we need more medical anthropologists. We need more physicians who have studied public health. We need more musicians who go into medicine. I think having these sort of multifaceted, really 
sort of human focused clinicians is going to be really important. And I also want, you know, I, I, I want to see more computer scientists, MDs, because I think that, you know, oftentimes, it, and I am seeing more of those in terms of the companies that I'm seeing, but, um, you know, let's say a few years ago, it was the computer scientists trying to build a solution that no doctor wanted to use, right? Clinician adoption was so difficult, but what I'm seeing more of, and you know, I'd love to see more of entrepreneurs come my way, are these you know, uh, computer scientists turned MDs or MDs turned computer scientists who innovate and build tools that actually not only help patients, but are meaningful in reducing burnout in clinicians and, and optimizing efficiency and so on. So um, I want to see that. And I also think, it, you know, we need more primary care um, health practitioners beyond MDs. Would love to see more of that as well. And hopefully that enables better access to care. Absolutely. And that's, that's where we're most excited about too at Osmosis is, uh, you know, we want to raise the line and improve healthcare capacity, not only by training current and future healthcare uh, MDs and DOs and NPs, advanced practice folks, but also health coaches and nutritionists and uh, EMTs and CNAs. We got our certified nurse assistant program accredited in Oregon and have a cohort going through right now. Um, so it's all exciting. And then on your topic about MDs turned computer scientists or vice versa, my co I don't know if I told you this when we were first meeting, but my co-founder Ryan self-taught himself to code when he was eight. Uh, and then he, at Hopkins, when we met in med school, his nickname was Dr. Zuckerberg because he was, you know, he was never paying attention to lectures. He was always in the back coding. And, and that's why I approached him to talk about osmosis. So I, I remember you telling me that exactly. And, you know, those types of folks, I think are just really helping us shape the future of healthcare. And so you're lucky to be working with him and, and I'm excited to see more of those. Totally. Well, I know we're coming up on time. So my, my last question for you is, what advice would you give to our audience of current and future healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of COVID and beyond, as well as thinking about the, you know, creating the future as you and your team at Lux are doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, there is, now a newfound general interest in healthcare. And you and I also have spoken about this. And so I love the fact that there were these grand rounds videos that were going viral on YouTube, right? Like that, you know, as somebody who literally reads medical journals for fun, like I'm every physician's worst, worst nightmare, <laughs> but um, I, I think that the, the broader population is really actually finally interested in advocating for their own health and understanding it. And one of the things I love about what you do is making that more accessible to a broader population in addition to, you know, improving uh, education of healthcare practitioners. So to the extent that we can have more of that across generations, enable um, not just the practitioners, but everyday people to better understand their own bodies and their own health, I think we're, we're all going to be uh, all the better for it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and especially because when, when we see when there's uh, deserts of information, things, not only conspiracy theories like QAnon creep in, but also anti-vax movement, which has been, been here for a long time and is oh, jeopardizing our response to COVID as we speak right now. So, well, with that, Dina, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on Raise Line, but more importantly, for the work that you've been doing and are doing to create the future of healthcare and Raise Line as well. Thank you, Shiv, and, and right back at you. It's an honor to be here, and I look forward to many more conversations to come online or offline. And with that, uh, I'd like to thank our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, 
please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.